all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hope everybody's having a great Wednesday morning or perhaps you're listening on your favorite podcasting app. That does happen, so my apologies if we're not totally lined up on times, but right now, at least when we're live, it is uh, Wednesday morning, and this is the program, uh, if you're not familiar with it, that uh, basically answers any kind of healthcare question that you might have and is a little bit different than our other Southern Remedy programs, which tend to be more thematic um, and at each broadcast, but we uh, open up all the lines and basically you can call in or we take email questions about any kind of health care issue that you might have. Maybe it's a new symptom that you have or a new diagnosis that you don't quite understand or a medication that may have some side effects. Whatever the question is, you can reach us right now. And that email address, if you want to email us those questions, is remedy at mpbonline.org. We do try to to respond back directly to those, but we also uh, like to share those questions with our larger audience if you give us permission to do that. So I would encourage you to do that. I did mention the podcast. Just search for MPB Think Radio Southern Remedy, and you can uh, download those and listen at your leisure. Uh, in the yo-yo phase of January, as far as weather goes, it's uh, sort of back and forth. I don't know about you, but I'm one of those patients who – that's right. I'm a doctor and a patient. Um, I'm one of those patients that gets sort of that uh, back and forth sinus drainage. And right now, something set me off yesterday late, and it's uh, it was a little bit of a struggle last night and this morning trying to get a hold of that. But uh, tis the season, and particularly if you're in the south in Mississippi – um, I was noticing on the way here to MPB Studios that a lot of the plants that sort of took a hit with our cold snap, um, our unseasonably cold snap a few weeks ago, look like they're trying to green out a little bit. And uh, sometimes you can see those uh, get sort of shocked into flowering uh, a little early. So it wouldn't surprise me if that happened, if it uh, continued to be uh, sort of mild weather moving into uh, to February, but we'll see. Never know what's going to happen in the South. I don't know about you, but with my a lot of my patients, particularly my older patients, constipation is a big problem, and I have a lot of patients that uh, come to see me, and it tends not to be a primary concern, but sort of a secondary concern. But boy, it can be one that really interferes with your daily living. And it is fairly common in the elderly, and there's a lot of things that could be causing that. 
one of the most common things is just not getting enough water into your system. And the way our colon works, that's the lower portion of our GI tract, is that it uh, it absorbs a lot of the water in the stool at that point that it's delivered to it and electrolytes, and it uh, pulls that back into the bloodstream. So um, if that's not happening, if you don't have enough water that you're drinking daily, then that can lead to it. But there's lots of other, uh, lots of other things that could be uh, sort of a side effect it is constipation. One of them is medications, too. Um, and then uh, thyroid problems can certainly cause that. So there's a lot of different reasons why you might have that. And if you are elderly, um, don't blow that off and just say, well, everybody has constipation to some extent. I'm just not going to worry about it too much. Because there can be some other things that might be causing problems such as partial obstructions, particularly if you're having problems uh, to the point of your vomiting or you can't keep anything down, period, then you may need some further testing and need to see a physician about that. But common problem has lots of different causes and uh, can be fairly easy to prevent um, constipation, particularly the sort of the slow transit constipation. Or um, I mentioned one way is to drink more, more fluids or water as long as that's not interfering with other medical conditions that you have. Eating more fiber helps to sort of bulk up the fecal materials in your intestine. It helps it to move along a lot better. So foods with insoluble fiber fiber in it, that's fiber that you can't absorb into your body. That's really important to eat. And an easy way to do that, you can look for that on food labels and look it up on the Internet. But... Honestly, if you think about it, foods that are stringy and that you have to uh, chew up more, that's going to have more fiber in it and probably fiber that you can't absorb through your body. And it's going to allow that to transit out uh, as it should. So uh, think about that if you're uh, having constipation. But if it's getting to the point where it's pretty persistent, you might want to go see your physician. They may want to do some testing and maybe some further studies to see what the cause is. We're going to go to Kat in Mobile. Good morning, Kat. Good morning. Um, I had a quick question, or maybe not a question. We'll see. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry. I feel weird now. Um, it seems like when I have, I guess, nights where I don't get a lot of rest, I have a little one. It seems like I have reoccurring. Um, it almost feels like sinus strange. Yeah. Like there's an issue with my throat, and my nose and my throat feel like that feeling when it's sinus strange. But I don't think that's it. So that was <clears throat> one of my questions. Just how can I guess how can I avoid that or is there I guess just what's going on, the science behind that with the lack of sleep and then um are there any natural immune boosting agents or things that I could take? Sure. Yeah, we we can address both those questions. So Sinus drainage, particularly at night, that is a common thing that affects a lot of people, myself included. And it can be sort of a chicken or the or the egg type situation with your sleep. So poor sleep by itself should not affect how much mucus that you produce in your upper airway that, that uh, you know, when you sleep or even when you're awake – If you're not blowing that out, if you're not spitting that out, it's going to be swallowed. That's just the way the body deals with it, and that's okay. But it can, if you have an an excess of that, you wake up with a sore throat, you may wake up with a scratchy throat, or maybe you wake up with this feeling of a fullness uh, in your head, a sensation of fullness. 
But all those things certainly can affect your sleep. And if you end up, if your nose is stopped up and you end up mouth breathing, that can also, uh, you know, contribute to some of the symptoms too. So what I would suggest, there are some simple things to, you know, avoid medications at first that, that are very effective. One is to, uh, one is to, to use a nasal irrigant. And that's just a, it sounds fancy, but basically you're just using some salt water to flush the outside surface of your, uh, in, of the interior surface of your nose, those mucous membranes, just to sort of flush all those things that have collected there. And, uh, and it helps it to drain like it normally would. Drainage from your sinuses and from your airways is, uh, is normal. They drain and it should be clear. It shouldn't be excess. But certain things can make it that way, and that can be an irritant. It can be an infection. It can be something that you ate or something that you smelled that sort of sets you off. So it could be a lot of different things. But the, a simple thing to do would be to do that, and there's multiple ways to do that. Some people use um, something called a neti pot, uh, which has very good instructions on how to use that. Uh, some people use applicator bottles that have a little, uh, a little thing that fits up into your nose that you squirt to the salt water there. Um, and then it sort of washes all that off. A lot of people can get a improvement in their symptoms just by doing that. And the good thing is you really can do that multiple times a day. So you could do it twice a day or even three times a day, and it's not going to hurt anything. It is recommended that you use distilled water for that, and uh, um, that's important in that you don't have any contaminants, even through the tap sometimes, some of that water, some water sources uh, can be contaminated with things that you don't want to be squirting up your nose. And then the salt water, um, you know, the one I use actually has these little packets that you put in with the water in the applicator bottle, and that has the right concentration. Now, beyond that, there are some some medical medications that you can use if you're still having problems that you can use with this method and one that is very safe and that uh, doesn't get absorbed much into your system that you can just use right there in your nose, in your nasal passages, is something called Flonase or a topical steroid. And basically that's going to shut down that immune response, that over-immune response in those airways right there. And if you're doing that, you want to wash those uh, mucous membranes off first and then use the, the nasal steroid. Um, but that can help a lot, and that can help avoid some of the other systemic medications like the antihistamines that a lot of people have some problems with that, um, you know, with memory and with, uh, with just how they think and how they sleep. But that should give you doing that routine might help you sleep a little bit better. And then looking for possible things that are setting you off if, uh, you know, if you are allergic to something that's in your bedroom, then that might be contributing to some of those symptoms as well. As far as a something to boost your immune system, I know there's a lot of things out there that tout that, like all kinds of vitamins, vitamin C, vitamin E, uh, all kinds of natural uh, homeopathic type uh, things that you can do. Unfortunately, there's, there's never been really a good association between any of those in an immune system response that's increased. However, what we do know is that eating a healthy diet that has a lot of fruits and vegetables in it, not a whole lot of processed foods, things that are healthy for you, getting a lot of uh, regular exercise, 
those have been demonstrated to increase your immune response uh, very well. So I'm not a big fan of taking extra things like that, like the vitamins, because there's just not a whole lot of science behind that. Certainly most of those are not going to harm you if you want to do that. I know a lot of people swear by them and say, I've taken a thousand milligrams of vitamin C every day and I've never gotten the cold. That's great. And you can continue doing that and that's not going to harm you. But when you look at the science, it really doesn't it really doesn't bear out for that. But there is a lot of evidence for uh, scientific evidence for eating a healthy diet and exercising regularly. And it can also benefit sleep, too. So you might can hit two birds in one stone. But that's the things that I would start off that are just sort of basic. And then if you're still having problems, you might want somebody to take a look at you to see what's going on in your nose or the posterior of your of your nasal passages. Thank you. All right, Kat, thank you for calling. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions and taking your calls and some emails, too, if we have time for those, about any kind of healthcare issue that you might be dealing with and have questions about. We're going to go to Billy in Vicksburg. Good morning, Billy. Yes, sir. I was going to ask you, I have two questions. Um, one is about a CPAP machine. I, I, I sleep with a CPAP, and I, I've just been using regular tap water. Is that not a good thing? Yeah, so the uh, so for the I know you know all about CPAP if you're particularly if you if you've got one at home and been wearing it, but just to let everybody else know what that is, so that's a that's a machine uh, that delivers continuous positive airway pressure, or sometimes they use BiPAP that uses bidirectional. Uh, positive airway pressure, and it is used to treat obstructive sleep apnea. So that's a condition where you have disordered breathing when you sleep and you're not oxygenating your body well enough and can, has all has a lots of different problems, downstream effects. It can harm your heart. It can cause secondary uh, elevations of blood pressure and all kinds of different things. So in the treatment of that, it's a little device that fits over your either as a mask over your face or in your nose, and basically it provides a little bit of extra pressure there. Now, the air that it that it delivers from the room, um, it tends to be uh, to dry you out if, it's, if it doesn't have water with it. So most of the machines have a little place that you put water in there for the night, and it basically humidifies that air that it's delivering to you, and it doesn't cause a lot of... You know, if you don't do that, you end up with a sore throat or a dry, scratchy throat the next morning. So using tap water, it's probably okay. However, they do recommend that you use distilled water there, again, because you just don't know the source. Now, I'll give you a good example, and I'm not picking on any one city. However, the closest city to us right now that we are in is Jackson. And if you have tap water, you know, from Jackson, if you know know sort of what the quality of your tap water is, uh, and you should get a report. All the you know municipal water systems do give you a report by law about that, and from time to time they may have different things that are in there. But if you're comfortable with that, you know there's probably a really small risk of that. Um, you know, I swim three times a week, and I'm probably exposed to you know all kinds of stuff swimming. Particularly, my backstroke is so dismal, I'm going to swallow water every time or get water in my nose. So. Um, I think it's probably a minimal risk, but that's the reason why they recommend that. And uh, a lot of people just get the big jugs of water, and then they just put it beside their bed or somewhere close, and they can just fill that up. But that's the reason behind that. Now, there are have been instances of amoebas, uh, which are these macro, uh, these uh, single-cell organisms, these protozoas, that basically they can cause infections, and they can sometimes live in tap water. Uh, but uh, pretty low risk for that. And if your water 
treatment uh, facility is is pretty you know pretty legit, it's probably going to be okay. And the water pressure is okay too, of course. Um, have you heard about the Inspire? You know, it's supposed to take like it could take the place of the CPAP machine. It's like a yeah, like the I, device I, I you're talking about. Yeah, that fits in. Yeah, there there have been, and actually, I've got a good buddy of mine who's an orthodontist that um, we've talked about this before. You know, there are certain other things that can help with malalignment of the of the jaw that might alleviate the symptoms, and you don't have to do that. Or there might be certain procedures that they do. Yep. So there's one that takes out a lot of the soft tissue, and that sometimes can help. I've had some patients that had that, particularly the surgical procedures, and they ended up, uh, you know, helping for a while. But after a couple of years, they had they were back on CPAP. But that that's just anecdotal. I don't know what the long term effects of that are, honestly. Um, so um, you know, it just sort of depends on the patient. But yeah, there are some other alternatives to that. Okay. Yes, sir. Th- thank you. I love y'all show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Billy. We appreciate your call. We're going to go to Tina in Hattiesburg. Good morning, Tina. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I had a question about the bivariate, um, the bivariate shot. I got it at the end of September. I'm 54 years old, and I'm just wondering how long the protection lasts. From, like how many does it take? Yeah, you're breaking up a little bit, Tina, but that basically the bivalent vaccine is one that was developed for some of the newer strains that are out of COVID. And it is effective, particularly in um, decreasing a lot of the complications in high-risk people especially. Uh, as far as like when did to get another one, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of ID specialists on this and just to sort of gain some uh, some understanding of it. Most of them are saying anywhere from about four to five months after you you know get the last one is probably when you need the next one. I suspect, depending on what this virus does, that may change over time to something more like the flu eventually, but uh, we'll see. I mean, that, that's all sort of speculative based on patterns of, of how COVID's behaving now that it's not in the pandemic phase, but it's just little outbreaks here and there. But yeah, I think if it's September, you know, we're in January now, you've probably got at least a month or two more before I would even consider getting another one. But does it make sense to get a second one of the same vaccine Will the, will there be a new vaccine released? Oh, I, I yeah, I think they're gonna yeah, I think they're gonna de- continue to look at the different strains and to develop different vaccines that are newer, much like the flu. But um, you know, if they don't for some odd reason, it would probably still give you a little bit more um, boost in your immunity to COVID, um, at least with the side effects to it by taking that same one. You know, our first first round of vaccines, they were the same. Now we've got a lot of exposure, you know, either from vaccination and or getting COVID or being exposed to COVID. So we're sort of at the place now where really specificity is probably the biggest thing with that. But yeah, if they don't, for some odd reason, have that in another couple of months, I probably would go ahead and get uh, that one unless the recommendations have changed based on what's out there. All right. Thanks for calling. We're going to go to Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. Dr. Jimmy, I, I don't know. I know you're aware that you're 
You're also rebroadcast. Your Wednesday show is rebroadcast on Sunday mornings at six o'clock on MPB. You know that's a, thanks for that plug, Sue. We're gonna, uh, the, but uh, yeah, I had a, a. It's funny somebody made a comment and said, "Hey, I woke up to you Sunday morning," and I said, "What?" Uh-huh. And I, they said, yeah, you were uh, on the radio Sunday morning, and uh, you're right. It does uh, rebroadcast on the weekends there. So uh, if you can't make the whole show and you're sort of a diehard and you're up at that time, that's another good time to listen to it. And, and I'd like I'd like to mention, you were talking about constipation, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I want to mention this. Uh, I, I have, I have, you have to watch these things that say uh, you buy, uh, I bought some cookies once and once I bought some lemon drops. It said sugar free, and uh, that sugar free stuff. It, I don't think saccharin or Splenda or stevia, any of that stuff, causes diarrhea. But if you get some cookies or any other or candy or any other food stuff that's sweet, with I think it's xylitol. Yep. There, then it will sure give you diarrhea. <laughs> yep, and you're exactly right. And that's a you know it's an osmotic diarrhea. In other words, it pulls. Wherever that molecule goes of the xylitol, it's going to pull water with it. And if that water stays in your GI tract, you're going to have more water in there, and then you're going to have diarrhea. Or, you know, if you have constipation, it may make it better. But that's that's right. That's just an osmotic effect of that. And a lot of people have that with uh, with those artificial sweeteners that have xylitol in it. And if you give anybody enough of xylitol, you can make them have diarrhea. That's that's certainly there. So if you're if you're like me, and sometimes you just can't put the cookies down, uh, then that may be a, you may need to stay near a uh, bathroom if you're going to do that. <laughs> so that's a good point, Sue. And actually, that's one of the treatments, um, very safe and effective treatment of constipation is Miralax. And Miralax has a substance called polyethylene glycol in it. And basically it acts sort of in a similar fashion to hold water inside the lumen, the inside the interior of the intestines so that it, um, that you have, you know, looser stools, uh, to, to treat the, the constipation, very safe, you know, medication because it doesn't get absorbed by your body at all. It's too big to do that. And it just sort of travels right on out. So, uh, and it's very, you can titrate that. It's a powder. You can mix it in with any kind of thing you want to, whether that's water or, uh, you know, other, um, other liquids. And then, uh, just once a day pretty much is what you need to do for it. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Uh, I use saccharin, like sweet, sweet and low. And years ago, there was a lot of hubbaloo about, you know, saccharin was dangerous and cancer causing but that's that's what i've always used it's never caused any problems is there any is that the same as saccharin still frowned upon you know most of those were in quantities that were so high that it's probably not that big a risk i mean it was all animal studies there's never to my knowledge i've never seen a study that's reputable that showed a connection between saccharin long-term saccharin use and cancers in humans but there, there have been animal studies where they fed them a hundred or thousand times the dose of what's in any kind of you know sweetened artificially sweetened product, and those animals got cancer. But that is a dose effect. I mean, it's like if nobody would ever eat like the whole bag in one sitting of saccharin if you were using it. Um, you know, not like a packet, but I'm talking like a huge bag of it. So I, I haven't ever seen any of those. And there's plenty of other carcinogens out there that uh, can cause problems that um, that are a whole lot more, you know, of a risk for cancer than saccharin. Can I ask you one more quick question? Sure. Uh, 
I know a lady recently who's having a lot of gut trouble and diarrhea and stomach upset and everything. Anyway, she 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 heard or read somewhere that uh, that the COVID virus like thrives in your intestines. Is that true? And why would it, why why would it like to live in an environment like that? I never heard of any other virus that that would like living in your intestine. And mm-hmm. yeah, it has is that to. True, but. It actually is, yeah. So it's not just in the intestines. Now you can find COVID in all. If you've if you've been infected with COVID, you can find it in all kinds of different tissues, and two big areas that cause problems. And usually, you you know about this because the, of the symptoms of uh, that go along with it. So respiratory, the whole respiratory tract, from all the way from your nose all the way down into your lungs, that is one of the places where COVID likes to hang out, and it's because of the receptors. In particular, the ACE receptors, the angiotensin-converting enzyme receptors, is one of the ways that it enters, it attaches to cells, and it enters into cells. And another place that you have those is in the GI tract. And uh, a lot of people with COVID infections will have diarrhea. It's actually not that uncommon for some viruses to do this. So there's a group, other groups of viruses like the enteroviruses can cause both uh, upper respiratory uh, symptoms of cough and sneezing and an increase in the mucus uh, production. Um, and then also it can cause diarrhea as well. So there are some other viruses that do that, but really it's just about the receptor that they're attaching to. And uh, it usually goes along with it, with the symptoms that you have. All right. Thank you, Sue. Let's go to Jonathan from Meridian. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. Hey, you're on the air. What's your question? Okay, uh, I took that fifth uh, booster, that uh, COVID fifth booster, the, the bivalent. Yeah, the bivalent. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I broke out in a bad rush. Uh, it lasted and lasted for quite a while. And it's and it just, just, it just uh, getting better after two months. And I was just wondering, has many other people have had that experience? I, I knew of one other person in Mississippi that had that, but I was just wondering, uh, was there many more? Yeah, good question. And sort of, you know, it's applicable to all vaccines. And uh, you can develop a rash at the site of in, of the injection. And that's pretty common across the board with vaccinations, just because the body can see that as something foreign and the rash is sort of the manifestation of that. Now, if it's if it's broader out than that, like if it's, you know, down the entire arm or if it's across the rest of the body, that's a little bit more unusual. But you can it is rare, but you can have a cutaneous um, allergic uh, type response to that. And Uh, We see this sometimes with other vaccinations uh, from time to time. It tends to be self-limiting. You can treat it if it's a severe one that's symptomatic with something like an antihistamine because it tends to be a histamine-type response. Um, uh, But it usually causes no problem whatsoever. The big question that everybody has is, okay, since I had that, should I be able to take the same vaccine again and uh, it really depends on the vaccine, and that's something that, you know, you sort of have to talk to your – I would encourage you to talk to your physician about. There may be some other factors, too, like uh, other uh, medical conditions that you have. 
that might be uh, playing into that. But, uh, yeah, it is common. I haven't seen anybody other than a, I have seen a little bit of redness. You know, it's hard to say, you know, is that a true rash or is that just sort of redness at the site? Um, and But all of that's very common and normal to have redness at the vaccination site. Um, but, uh, you know, varicella is another one that sometimes you can even get like one or two little chickenpox lesions at the site um, with the old vaccine series. Of course, now we don't have um, we don't it's not a live vaccine, so we don't really have the same response to that. But um, but yeah, redness and a little bit of a rash at the site is okay. And most people would say you can be revaccinated with that. Um, it just sort of depends on your overall risk and if you need that that vaccine or not. But I would I would always consult with your physician about that, or or even uh, you know an allergy immunologist would be somebody else to talk about if you're concerned about any future reaction to it. But a great question, great question. Let's go to Lisa, who's been patiently waiting from Mobile County. Good morning. Hi. So you were talking about the the, the, vac- the COVID vaccines and boosters, and I follow Caitlin Gentilina, who posts under your local epidemiologist, and she's really good about looking at all the research. And it, although it's not completely definitive, it looks like maybe the Moderna vaccine is better against the Omicron variant. And as far as the boosters are concerned, they're supposed to be meeting tomorrow, actually. So hopefully guidance will be coming out soon on when people should get boosted again. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You know, it's um, you can get as, you know, extremely technical. There's different ways that they look at this. Of course, safety is one big, broad issue to make sure that each, not just you know, you don't just make sure the first set of vaccines were safe and then you don't redo that. They do it with each one that comes out. And then also the effectiveness, and there's two ways to do that. One is an immunologic response from blood taken from individuals who've gotten the vaccine to see if they make antibodies against it. And then the second is just to look and see who's exposed to it. And then did they get COVID? And then what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of, uh, what was their COVID infection like? Uh, so it can tell you what the protective, the real life protective effect of getting it, and um, uh, also you know to protect you against some of the downstream effects. So so thanks, Lisa. Yeah, that's that, and you're exactly right. Um, I thought you know I didn't look at that before I came in, but you're right. I think I knew it was this week or next week that they were going to meet to look at that. Um, so that's coming up, and we should have more information out there. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, thanks for listening and calling. Let's go to James from Meridian. Good morning, James. Good morning. Uh, I have a question. Something's been going on about 20 years now. I lost my sense of I can't feel anything. I talked to my doctors about it, but I really hadn't got into it completely. Well. They said I might have to have surgery. And anything over the counter, over the counter that I could buy, you know, might help. Did you say that you had a problem with your the feeling in your feet? Oh, you can't you can't smell anything. I got you. Okay, yeah, that's uh, that is a common thing that can happen, and there's there's a lot of different reasons why. So loss of smell can be pretty detrimental to a lot of people, and it goes along with taste sometimes too. Uh, of course, COVID infection was early on was it was identified that that was a common symptom of patients uh, loss of smell and sometimes that came back and sometimes it hasn't but those nerves that um they're they're 
you know, it's a very short pathway from your nose to the brain, and that's your first cranial nerve, basically, are those short little nerves that come out. And they're very good at picking up different scents of things and what we smell. However, they're because of that ability, they're also very prone to damage. And it's very common to lose your smell intermittently for short periods of time, like if you have a uh, cold or if you've got any kind of infection in your nasal cavity, you pretty much, well, number one, you're going to coat those nerves with all this excess mucus and material, and they're not going to be able to get to the things floating around through your nose that they need to smell things. But also you can do direct damage to the nerves themselves. Uh, trauma is another one. So people who have been in car wrecks, um, for instance, uh, even if it's a mild one, that jarring effect can sometimes shake those nerves enough that they're not going to work for a while. Sometimes they're sort of sheared off a little bit. Um, but it, you really, we don't have anything to, um, to, that you can take to help those grow back or that, um, you know, that any kind of surgical procedure or something like that. Again, that's a part that's, you know, where those nerves attached to the upper part of the nose is really close to the brain. So you don't want to be messing around in that area unless you just have to. And, uh, I'm not aware of any restorative procedures that they can do surgically for that. Now, I would say there are a lot of products out there for for neuro uh, for neuro, neurologic regrowth or neurologic health, and there is a little bit of in vitro or or evidence in the lab in a lab test about how what kinds of things do nerves need to grow better or to grow back or to regenerate. And I know a lot of neurologists who are interested in these areas. And if you think about another, you know, another uh, population of people uh, that might be affected by something like this is if you've had a stroke or if you've had peripheral nerve damage from something. I've I've seen a couple of neurologists that did prescribe that and uh, that people took those. And, you know, it's sort of hard to see if there's any kind of real life benefit to it. But I'll tell you, if it was affecting me a whole lot and it was a safe product, that's usually what I say about, you know, all kinds of either supplements, you know, even if we don't have the um, if we don't have the scientific evidence, it might be worthwhile to take it as long as it's not going to harm you in any way. And um, that may be something that you uh, that you may want to check out. I'm not aware of any of those off the top of my head, but um, certainly, it, you know, it, you might want to see if your physician can reach out to a neurologist just to see if there's any kind of things like that or if there's, you know, always a second opinion about it. But generally speaking, those are very delicate nerves. It's uh, very common to lose that sensation of smell. Uh, if, and usually it's going to, if it's going to come back, it comes back in a couple of weeks to a couple of months. If it's, if it's been going on longer than that, you're probably not going to get it back. Um, but it may be worthwhile to try, try some of the other things. There is a, uh, sort of a physical therapy for that too, to retrain your body to do things. You know, physical therapy has been very effective with, uh, stroke patients even if they've had pretty profound deficits and pretty profound difficulty with things like uh, moving their upper extremity or walking, if you get into physical therapy, basically what you're doing is you're training your brain to rewire those pathways that it has with good tissue in the brain uh, so that it can regain those functions and there is, and not a whole lot of people are doing it, but there is a similar retraining or therapy 
for regaining your smell or retraining your body about how to interpret those signals. So that's something else to check out. But most of that's going to be through a neurologist. Um, those are the specialists that deal with nerves in the brain. So um, you might want to check check somebody out about that just to see what your uh, options are. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. If you don't get a chance to ask us uh, when we are live, you can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Peter from Mobile. Good morning, Peter. Uh, good morning, Dr. Jimmy. Uh, Dr. Jimmy, I'm 72, and I very rarely get uh, uh, sunlight uh, intentionally because I've had a little skin cancer problem. So I uh, started taking uh, vitamin D supplements, and then a uh, friend said, oh, you should take uh, a K2 with that. And then I heard, well, you, that may cause kidney stones, uh, and kidney stones do seem to run in my family. Uh, I had one once a long time ago. Uh, wondering... Uh, first of all, I am going to try to get a, a test, blood test, to see how I'm carrying vitamin D. But uh, question is, if I eat a lot of vegetables, should I be taking a K2 supplement uh, or not? Yeah. Yeah, great questions. Uh, so vi- both of those are very important vitamins that our body needs for different processes. Vitamin D is one, of course, most people think of it for from a bone health standpoint, but it is related to a couple of other different things. And it has sort of a, uh, it's, it's actually a very interesting pathway in the way that our body uh, tries to maintain healthy levels of vitamin D. And one of those is through sunlight. Uh, so direct, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, alluded to direct uh, sunlight on our skin can help convert uh, a precursor to vitamin D. And then that uh, has a, a different route that it's changed a little bit more by your kidneys, actually, uh, so that it's a form that our body can use. So uh, if you're not getting a lot of sunlight, then certainly a vitamin D supplement's not a bad idea. Um, and I was going to, you sort of answered my question there for, from the vitamin D standpoint, at least. Yeah, if you check levels, it's easy to check levels of vitamin D. Most of the time, if your level is greater than 40 on most of the tests, the way that they, they get it back, um, and then that's fine. You know, you should be fine with what you're doing. Uh, of course, it does, you know, sometimes it depends on how you take it and how much you absorb. Uh, but if it's, if it's less than 40, and really if it's less than 20, then that may necessitate maybe stepping it up to sort of a prescription strength of vitamin D. As far as how to take it and then the, the kidney stone issue, you know, you have to sort of, you know, kidney stones aren't just one thing. It can be caused by a number of different uh, things. The biggest thing is we live in the South. It gets hot in the summertime. We're more prone to get dehydrated, and that's when you see most of our kidney stones is in the hot summer months. And um, that's the number one cause of kidney stones. It, it's not necessarily the vitamin D, but it's a calcium-mediated uh, product because most kidney stones have calcium or calcium-based stones. But there are some other conditions where you can have some different stones. So there's some struvite stones and there's uh, uric acid stones if you have gout. So there's lots of other reasons why you, you, you can have stones. But I have never heard or seen anybody who's taken vitamin D, even in the prescription doses, which are way higher. It's like 50,000 units 
uh, once a week for four weeks. I've never seen anybody get stones just from that. They're usually, there's something else going on. And I think if you're drinking plenty of fluids, that's probably not going to be an issue at the doses that you're taking. Vitamin K, you probably don't need to worry about if you're eating a healthy diet because there are bacteria in our gut that convert uh, they basically live there and uh, are commensurate with us. So they're living with us in our gut. It's sort of crazy to think about that, isn't it? But we need them. They're really healthy bacteria. And one of the things they do is they produce these substances like vitamin K that our body then absorbs straight from our gut. Um, and if you're, you know, that's if, if any of our listeners know that if they're taking warfarin, if they're taking Coumadin for, as a blood thinner, and it basically interferes with that vitamin K-dependent pathway of uh, coagulation factors. And if you eat things like turnip greens or lots of green leafy vegetables that have vitamin K in it, you can overcome the effect of the warfarin or Coumadin is having on the body. And that, that's, you know, sort of negates the effect of it. It just shows you how powerful that is. Our, your diet is in delivering vitamin K to those bacteria so that they can make more of it. The other thing to think about is if your gut's not working appropriately, then uh, like if you have a long course of antibiotics, it sort of wipes out those uh, good bacteria, then you may have some problems with that. Or if you've had something to happen to your gut that's interfering with its absorption of vitamin K, that would be a reason to supplement vitamin K in those situations. And there are some some other ages, certainly not at 72, but, you know, young infants, oftentimes their liver, the liver is the other place that's involved in that in making vitamin K. And there it's not working as well, particularly if they're premature. And we would typically give vitamin K to those infants uh, right around the time of birth or if they're premature even after that. So there are some situations to do that, but it sounds like in your case, vitamin D, I would say, yeah, I probably need that at least 400 uh, units a day. Get it the level checked, see what those levels are, and if you need more of a bigger prescription dose, they can do that. Vitamin K, probably not going to be a problem, unless you're just, you know, if you're having symptoms of easily, like if you're bleeding profusely from cuts and they're not closing up, and or if there's if your physician's worried about a a, a bleeding problem, uh, that may be a reason to check it, but I, I rarely check vitamin K. Oh, and one other, one other uh, group of people, if you've had gastric sleeve or gastric, gastric bypass, that's another uh, population that may have, again, an alteration in the way that the gut uh, absorbs things that they may want to have you know, their vitamin K levels checked and then supplement it. But if you have a healthy diet, I don't think that's probably going to be a problem. So the K levels can be checked as well with the blood test? They, they can. They're a little bit more expensive, but it's pretty easy to send those off. Most of the time, doctor's offices don't have those uh, themselves, um, to the ability to check it. But, yeah, you can check those too. Okay. Uh, I know we're running out of time. Uh, you mentioned 400. That, uh, that was IUs? Yes, international units of the vitamin D. Okay, right. Sir. So uh, what I bought was five thousand IUs. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, don't don't worry about it. If, if that's that's way that's that's more than enough. So you should be fine. All right. Last question: If I'm going, I'm going to have my blood test soon. Uh, should I stop taking the vitamin D? leading up to it to just get a, get a baseline without it? it? It won't really help if you stop it just because it is, uh, it's a fat-soluble vitamin, so it takes a long time for it to be depleted. So it's, um, you know, it, it's, it, I would keep doing what you're doing. It's not, either way, it's not going to really affect that level. 
That's okay. about all, uh, uh, that's sorry to cut you off, but that's about all the time we have for today. I want to thank all of our callers today. It's been really good with all the information that uh, you've driven by the questions that you ask. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.